Welcome into another episode of Behind the Catch Fence. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Uh, so you're looking around, if you're on YouTube, you're looking around, you may see a little bit of a different change of scenery. Uh, you know, you got a Boris said nose, Ford Fusion nose here, that sign on the other side. Uh, there's a story behind that, I'll get to that at some point. Uh, on my left side, you got a Tony Stewart uh, display case, got die cast cars. Uh, helmet, you know, whatever else. Big Stewart fan for a lot of years, so that's with that. Um, and also wearing, you know, I'm not wearing the, you know, the BCF polo this time. I felt, you know, since I'm at home, want to show off a little bit of like fun, you know, give a little bit of a fun vibe to the, to like the video viewers. So wearing a John Force, I believe it's 2002 uh, Championship Crew Neck. I uh, found that off of eBay. Incredible. Um, you know, since I had him on the show a couple months ago, thought it'd be cool to, you know, get this. Um, he could be back on the show. Nothing, you know, I will not say yes or no yet, but it's, you know, you guys can figure that out for yourselves. It'll be coming out soon. <clears throat> Oops, I already spilled it. Uh, anyway, um, so, yep, that'll be up soon. Have another guy coming up this week as well, but today, well, before I begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to No Copyright Music on YouTube. They're the ones creating the music that I'm playing. It's obviously no copyright music, so it's free. I'd like to thank you guys for that. With me being a really, really broke college student, I'm grateful for you guys. Let's go subscribe to them. No copyright music. All right, so on today's show, episode 41, we have another special guest. And if you're on YouTube, you're probably wondering, why am I holding the Dale Earnhardt Jr. 2004 Daytona 500 winner? I mean, look at that thing. That thing's really cool. Got that signed to Watkins Glen a couple years ago. Um, but you're probably wondering, why am I holding it? Well, today on the show, not Dale Jr., but we do have his PR man from the Budweiser 8 Days, Jade Gerse. So Jade, he's done a lot with NASCAR, IndyCar, you know, just motorsports in general. Most recently, he's he wrote a, a checkered pass to Al Unser Jr. story. That's out. Um, you can get it for 35 bucks on, uh, you know, it's called Oc you know, Octane Press is the uh, publication company. He's written John Andretti's uh, Racer book. He's written a couple Dale Jr. books, including Driver Number 8. Um, let's see, who else, he's also, um, wrote, he also wrote, uh, Beast, uh, the story on the 1994, uh, Team Penske winner, uh, Alan Sir Jr., when that beast of motor, uh, they kind of, Team Penske found a loophole, um, and, uh, you guys have to go check that out to find the whole story, but, Jade Gers is on the show, we talk about all sorts of things from... <laughs> His, you know, his remarkable Kansas City Chiefs pulling out a win even, you know, a couple weeks ago against the Bills. I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen that um, whole game, but you know, we talked about that briefly. Uh, we uh, talked about just the Budweiser eight days and just the madness around that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen the, the Wilson ball in uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s car from 2001 at Dover when he won that. There's a story about that. Talk about just how Jade got into motorsports. You know, just his background with motorsports and just, you know, his books and everything else. So, you know, if you love the glory days of NASCAR, if you love just Dale Earnhardt Jr., if you love any type of great storytelling in motorsports, this is the one for you. So uh, stay tuned here in a second. Uh, so that's all we have. Episode 41. Let's get it rolling. Um, you know, so sit back, relax, grab your favorite uh, drink and snack, you know, maybe a lemonade and oh, Oreo Cakesters. They're back. Have you guys seen that? Oreo Cakesters are back. So... If you find those, I think you have to get them on Amazon or something like that. Um, so, you know, if you can find some Oreo Cakesters, go and get those. Grab a lemonade, get some Oreo Cakesters, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Episode 41 with Jade Gers. Well, I, or I could go, I could go none. How about that? That's a little <laughs> less exciting. But, What's the uh, picture over there? Is that from uh, the 90s? Yeah, that's from my days at uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, Formula One and IndyCar. We won the first two races or the first race of each category. So uh, yeah, it's uh, produced in uh, Germany in the days when you couldn't have any uh, tobacco uh, advertising. So you'll notice Marlboro is just they just put lines over it. So anyway, <laughs> I mean, hey, whatever works. <laughs> yes. Yes, so um, I noticed on Twitter, I, I know I, I'm a big dog person. I noticed that you have oh, yeah. two dogs. So, you know, describe yes. your personalities and a little bit about them. Oh, they're they're awesome. I don't know what I'd do without them. I just literally walked in from giving them a walk. Um, there are two rescue dogs. Uh, one is the smaller one. Uh, he was a stray. 
So we, I have no idea what his life was like before, uh, before I got him, but uh, he's a, a funky little guy that uh, just keeps getting better all the time. He had a lot of anxiety when I got him first. And the second one got as a, as a puppy rescued from uh, uh, her, the litter she was in, the, the mom gave birth under a, a large porch and the woman that owned, owned the dogs was too old to take care of them and couldn't get to them under the porch. So uh, she, she was a rescue as well. And she's the one that's a hundred percent big blue ball of energy at all times. So anyway. So it's interesting know. to see like how their personalities vary with each other. Oh yeah. <laughs> don't, don't know how I'd get along without them there. And they're completely uh, inseparable. They're, they're together all the time. So a lot of fun. You can't go wrong with dogs, I'll tell you that. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, where did your love originally for motorsports begin? Because you've had a very diverse background just in motorsports in general. Yeah, I, I actually know the exact date of my very first race. Uh, my mom had gone into labor uh, with my little sister, and they couldn't get a, uh, a babysitter. So uh, basically, I ended up going to the local dirt track with my aunt and my grandpa, and when you're three years old, um, you have different priorities. So each night before the feature, I got a free snow cone. And so when you're that age, it was like, heck yeah, free snow <laughs> yep. cone. So um, so I don't know if it was racing or snow cone initially, but that that's how I got uh, hooked on racing and uh, grew up around dirt tracks and sprint cars and all that. So uh, that's where the uh, obsession was born. And where did, uh, you know, who are some of your heroes back then when you were starting to really get to watch it and everything? Well, um, because I would go to the races with my aunt, uh, her all-time favorite was Parnelli Jones. Mm -hmm. So as a young kid, then that became, uh, you know, he became my, my hero. Uh, and then she would do the race reports for the local dirt track for uh, National Speed Sport News. Uh, so as a young kid, that's, I just was used to going to the pits after races and interviewing the winners and uh, she would interview and I would get autographs. And so uh, I think the, the die was cast at that point, but uh, I would in some way write about racing and, uh, and, and all of that. So that's, that's how that uh, got started or how all the interests that I still have uh, way too many years later uh, still, still persists. So I know you, I, uh, you went to a Washburn University for communications, like in broadcasting. Is that your initial yeah. goal with that? Or? Yeah, broadcast production. Um, I loved racing. I loved music. I played in bands. Uh, and I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And that still applies now. I'm still not quite sure what I want to be when I grow up. But, um, but I... I um, Got a broadcast degree, and then they built uh, Heartland Park Topeka, which was a giant road course slash drag strip in my hometown. And my little video uh, company got hired to cover some races. And, uh, you know, a year later, I got hired to work there. And, and that's what uh, kind of got the ball rolling. They're my first actual uh, paid gig in, in motorsports was uh, working for the local track. And kind of what? led you to end up going into public relations then <laughs> that was purely by accident uh honestly uh i had mentioned i had covered some races with uh, a small crew that I worked with. sorry you're hearing a couple of the right. dogs in the background um and um it's a long story but we we did a, a job that ended up getting the existing general manager he won a bet uh, and so I was brought in and interviewed and was hired as a PR assistant, which I really didn't have PR background, but about a week later, the guy who hired me got fired and I thought, man, I've got my dream job and now I'm, you know, I'm going to be out of my ass. And they hired a new general manager. He made us all re-interview for our jobs. And there was some conflict between he and the existing director of public relations so suddenly that guy is out on his ear and now I'm, I'm head of public relations one week into my career. 
and the guy that uh, that kept me around is still my mentor to this day. Uh, decades later, uh, he had a background in uh, as a uh, a sports editor of a of a newspaper. So he liked me because I was young and I didn't have a lot of bad habits. He could really kind of coach me and teach me the way he wanted it to, to be, uh, which has played out, you know, beautifully for me. And he was really such a good mentor that since then, I, I've really made a, a, a distinct effort to do all I can to help other young people that want to get started, whether it's in racing or, or anything else. Um, so I'm always trying to do what I can to sort of pay back the universe for the, the help that he had gave me and guiding me toward, uh, you know, where I'm at today. So uh, it was uh, uh, the right place at the right time, which has kind of been my career all along, uh, having uh, good opportunities at the right time, but at the same time, uh, working my butt off to make sure I took advantage of those lucky breaks. And I know, well, you know, you mentioned you didn't really have a background in PR before. Were you able to take anything from broadcasting in the PR, or was it kind of you had to learn well, everything from scratch? Um, yes and no. I, you know, I've been a writer. I'd written for the school newspaper in high school and then college, so it was not that I was uh, not a decent writer, but I had never studied PR, so I had to learn the techniques of of doing a, a proper PR news release and things of that nature and. You know, so through the years in writing thousands of those, I really learned to be very succinct, to, to tell the story in the most direct, most compelling way with, uh, you know, kind of the, the fewest words possible. <laughs> and so that kind of training really has helped me once I, uh, you know, started writing books and things. So it, uh, it was just... Uh, you know, even at my advanced age, I'm still learning all the time. So it's always a, a chance to improve myself or improve my writing, uh, no matter what. You mentioned writing. Uh, you know, what does the process look like just when you sit down with the drivers and, you know, just crafting and writing out, you know, and putting everything out on the paper? Yeah, you know, a, a typical PR program, uh, I, I was Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s PR rep for eight years in the Budweiser era. Um, so he and I would always talk on a particular give, uh, race weekend about the upcoming race so that uh, come Monday morning after the existing race has ended, um, I'm already prepared and have a news release ready to go previewing that upcoming week's racing. Uh, part of my goal was always to be the first one to, to have the preview come out because you're able to, to um, I don't want to say set the narrative, but if you're able to write a compelling piece previewing what's to come, uh, it sort of prompts journalists or the media, uh, you know, it may prompt ideas of them to write a feature or something like that. So it's always been very critical for me to understand the timing of these things and, you know, and being, um, consistently the first out each given week with a, a race preview and that that really continued through my my PR career uh, is that racing takes place for everyone in the industry in what I call real time in the sense that the race is scheduled at noon Sunday and that that green flag is going to happen whether you're ready or not so you can't sort of mess around or say, you know what, I'll do it next week. No, <laughs> no, that race is going to take off at, at 12 noon on Sunday and that green flag falls, whether you're ready or not. So you better be ready. So that, that really, um, even with my books, has been um, kind of a big influence on how I look at it or how I approach it in the sense that, uh, you know, it's, it's a very time-sensitive industry, whether you're writing news releases or, you know, if you're a mechanic working on a car, no, you can't take a day off. You, you know, that car's got to be ready to go when practice starts on Friday or, you know, whenever on that given week. So it's uh, really something that uh, has kind of driven me. And I, I've, I've been lucky to even give uh, 
speeches to uh, other businesses and things like that. And so that's one of the topics I like to talk about is the sense of racing being in absolute time. Uh, it's absolutely going to start at one o'clock on Sunday, whether you're uh, ready for it or not. So you bet you'd better be ready. Yeah. And we'll get back to uh, everything, you know, your time with Dale Jr. But I wanted to kind of touch upon, you know, your latest book, uh, A Checkered Past uh, with Alan Sir Jr. You know, yeah. just tell us a little bit, a bit about the book and then, you know, why any fan of motorsports should go and read it. Well, it, it came about, um, I had just finished in the pand- midst of the pandemic, I had just finished the book Racer with John Andretti. Uh, sadly, John had passed away in the process, which was a rough emotional piece of that book. And I had just finished. And it turns out that the Andretti family attorney happens to be Al Jr.'s attorney. So I got a call saying, would, would you speak with Al? He's interested in doing a book. And Honestly, I was just um, emotionally, I was spent, but I couldn't say no. I, you know, it was just too good of an opportunity. And I had worked with Al in the past. My book Beast obviously was about the 94 Indy 500 that Al won. But even before that, in the 90s, when he was with Roger Penske uh, and the Marlboro King Penske, uh, they ran Mercedes Ilmore engines. And I worked for Ilmore and Mercedes through the 90s. So, uh, so we had a good history. Uh, he and I sat down and immediately he said, I want to be open. I want to be honest. I want to share everything. I want others to learn from the struggles that I've had and the difficulties that I've been through. So I really responded to that because I don't know that I would have been interested otherwise. Um, you know, I have written books where, you know, the, the, hero building is a part of it. I'm not going to lie that that's part of, uh, of telling someone's story is, uh, you know, you emphasize the heroic elements, whereas Al had those heroic elements, but also a, a very rough life uh, dealing with drug and alcohol issues, substance abuse issues. Uh, and so we really, we jumped in feet first. Uh, like I say, that very first meeting he and I had, um, he shared a shocking story with me about him attempting suicide. And he said, that's got to be the opening of the book. And so if you've read the book, you know that that opening segment is, is just chilling, where he describes holding this, this gun in his hand and contemplating suicide. And I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be great. I have to, I have to be a part of this. I have to take on this challenge of telling this story. And so um, the fact that he's thrilled with the result and that so far people have really responded, that it's sold well and the response has been very positive is really, really, um, really satisfying to me to see that kind of response. What's kind of, you know, with any book that you've written, uh, what, what do you find to be like the most enjoyable aspect of it? Um, it's interesting. Athletes and musicians and, and people in other categories call it flow. When you're in the flow of the game, uh, it's when you just sort of, it, it instinct takes over. You're not thinking, you're not uh, worried about every move you're just you're flowing instinctually and and you're playing at your your peak of of emotion and and ability and when i'm writing um every so often i'll get into that flow where it just it just seems effortless and i'll, I'll kind of realize oh you know it's 10 30 at night and i haven't eaten dinner you know <laughs> It's, it's hard to describe, and it's not something you can just sort of force yourself into, but um, it, it's when I feel like I do my best work, and uh, usually on a typical book, um, there may be three or four days when I sort of get to that point, but, uh, but when I do, it's just it's a w- wonderful feeling. Look, in a way, I know I felt something similar with that, well, whether like editing something or putting something together, it's kind of like you you know everything starts to just flow at once and you feel like that yeah. passion kind of burning through you in a, in a way and you're like oh gosh I forgot you know, I haven't eaten yet like yeah you yeah you know being uh 
skilled at something is helpful because on the days when you're not feeling that, you must have the sort of the, the background or the, the, um, the foundation to be able to edit something even when you're just, you're not feeling it. Uh, and writing for me is a lot like that. There are days when I'd rather be anywhere else, but, um, but you're able to kind of still produce what, what you need to and hopefully go back and then edit those into something a little, little more palatable. But, uh, but yeah, you, you hit it on the head. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's being comfortable enough or confident enough in whatever your role, whatever that is, racing, writing, uh, whatever it is that uh, you can uh, hit that essence of flow. But if you're not feeling it, you can still do your job professionally and, and do it well. So uh, it's, uh, again, it's, it's part of, uh, of writing a book that I, that I love. Kind of going with the, the flow uh, you know, aspect of things. You know, when sure. you first started working with Dale Earnhardt Jr., what were some of the challenges just that you had to overcome to be able to get into that rhythm, that flow of, you know, because you guys were able to do so much, you know, incredible, you know, things together. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to describe. It was, I was at the right place at the right time. Um, Anheuser-Busch was my client. Budweiser was a brilliant sponsor. Uh, they supported us fully. Um, I've dealt with some other sponsors that are so risk averse or they're so uh, uptight about everything that it makes everything kind of drudgery. But Budweiser kind of let us let us get after it. And it just it was a whirlwind from the start, you know, starting his career with his famous name. There was always attention upon him. There was always pressure to perform uh, for him, for me, for the race team. Uh, but, you know, seven races into his career, he ends up winning at Texas and he wins the all-star race. And it just, this junior mania just went berserk. And so you didn't really even have time to think about things. You were just sort of uh, reacting and keeping up with things uh, you know rolling stone calls they want to do a feature oh my god you know we meet people from mtv suddenly he's on uh mtv originally a show called true life then they said hey do you want to do mtv cribs i mean it was just it was a perfect intersection of the right young man uh with a great personality very smart young man um and, you know, NASCAR at that point was on its, on its upswing. Uh, there was just every piece fell into place. And, um, you know, as hard as I've worked with other clients and other drivers, you, you can't sort of replicate that. You, you do your best, but uh, sometimes all the pieces fit and it just, uh, you're just lucky to hang on and try not to fall off, fall off as you're zooming through, uh, through space. Whoa, now before we continue on with this incredible episode with Jade Gers, we have a little bit of a public service announcement. You guys should go check out Racer Collect. Now Racer Collect, you probably wonder, what is that? What is Racer Collect? Sounds cool. Basically, if you go to www.racercollect.com, they have all of your merchandise, your motorsports merchandise needs from race used items to just, you know, the die cast, you name it, you know, paintings, they have it. Basically at Racer Collect, you're able to get race used memorabilia straight from the driver themselves. For instance, you can get race used memorabilia from Pippa Mann, Connor Daly, James Hinchcliffe, and all sorts of other drivers, you know, as they continue to partner up. And for Racer Collections, it's such a great place because you know it's authentic. You know it's going to come straight from the drivers. You can have it personally hand-signed. For instance, this James Hinchcliffe Race Use Fire Suit, you can have it. You can have a personal inscription on it if you want to. Have it directly signed by James Hinchcliffe, sent from his house all the way over to you. It's a great deal, and you're able just to really just know that, hey, this is coming from a great source. I know I'm getting authentic race use memorabilia. So go check them out on Instagram and Twitter. That'll be down below here at Racer Collect. And uh, if you have any other questions, make sure to comment below, but make sure to go check them out. 
All right, now back to episode 41 with Jade Gers. And this, you know, I remember listening to uh, the Dale Jr. download when that came out. Uh, I remember, <laughs> yes. you know, you mentioned how you kind of had to push Jr. out of his comfort zone a little bit with some of these opportunities. Yeah. How did you see, yeah. you know, Dale grow as a person through that? It, that that's fascinating as well. Um, he he had a father that everyone knows as the intimidator and he was the intimidator pretty much 24 <laughs> 7 so dale had this father that kind of uh you know was his hero uh was his boss you know his dad owned the race team his dad basically ran ran his life or his his life was determined sort of by his father so Dale Jr. was kind of shy in the sense of not trusting his, himself completely to, to trust himself, to, to break out of, of just doing it like his dad did. Um, and so he and I became pretty close uh, his, his rookie year. Um, and so I saw a lot of that in him. And then sadly, in 2001, when his father was killed, um, you know, suddenly uh, the guy that he thought was Superman was was gone. And so part of my role was to help him learn to trust himself or, uh, you know, learn to have the confidence to to do new things. Uh, it wasn't always easy. Uh, if you watch the, the Dale Jr. download where we talked about he was terrified of going on the MTV Music Video Awards because he didn't want to look bad by wearing a suit from a store in Mooresville, North Carolina. He just he just had these uh, insecurities. And so sometimes I'd have to push a little harder than other times. Uh, but once he would agree to do something, um, once we got into it, then he would uh, eventually relax and enjoy it. Uh, the MTV Awards, he was so nervous. I don't think he enjoyed it until the next day when all of his buddies called and said, dude, you were, you were great. And suddenly I think he finally realized how cool it was, <laughs> what he had just done. But, uh, but it, it's, it, it makes me really proud to see that those elements that were always within him are now really thriving really really great time with him uh just last week getting into the nascar hall of fame um really makes me proud to see him flourish and those anxieties go away as he's become a, you know just even more wonderful human you mentioned the hall of fame uh you know just what was it like to see and you know seeing him up on stage and you know as you were someone who was around him so much and you know to be able to say wow you know he accomplished probably the biggest thing in NASCAR. Yeah, well, it, it, like I say, I, I was so proud. I, I kind of have a, I kind of feel like an older brother in some weird way, you know. Um, and so, it was great for me personally to see it. Uh, I was thrilled for him and his family. Uh, because I knew I, I know that it means so much to him, but I was mostly proud because uh, as good as he was behind the wheel, I think this Hall of Fame thing is more about who he is as a human and what he's meant to the sport. Um, you know, again, we had some great victories and some amazing drives, and I could list 10 or 12 off the top of my head that were amazing on-track moments, but honestly, the whole Hall of Fame thing for me is about the person that he is, the, the way he handled or the adversity of his father's death, and the way he just uh, handled so much pressure with such... Uh, I don't want to say ease because it was difficult, but with such uh, uh, humility and just the way he conducts himself, uh, that to me personally is what I'm most proud of uh, for him and for his his family. And you mentioned this with, you know, it just seems like it's been great, you know, the past couple of years, especially with him being on NBC, doing, you know, the, the podcast and everything. It's just cool to see, like, because you can see his personality. You can see how much passion he has for the sport. 
Oh, yeah. I was just talking about it. You know, it's just been great to just see him really just like, you know, kind of grow into like this, you know, person that you, you've you seen for years at this point. Yeah. Well, and that that's what was funny. I, I sent a tweet the night after his after his Hall of Fame speech that the weird thing for me was him up there talking about uh, his career and these people was just like in the old days when he and I would sit on his bus at a race weekend and laugh and talk about racing and all that. He's the same way on NBC. It's just him sitting with his buddies, enjoying the race and talking about it. Uh, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but I find it very, uh, very entertaining. It's just him and his buddies, you know, sharing their joy of, of this sport. So, uh, I think that really comes through, uh, on air that that that's really how he is uh, on or off the cam yeah i know you mentioned a little bit earlier just you know the you know after in 2001 daytona you know the, the following july race what was that whole yeah. vibe leading up to that because i'm sure that had to be a lot of just pressure me you know whether it's media or just anyone yeah else. well it, it it was insane honestly it was insane from the moment his dad passed away uh leading up to that so you had this sort of three or four month build up i guess um and he he really was was smart in that he decided he didn't want to just show up at the racetrack cold he wanted to deal with it with his dad's death beforehand so in those days there was always a week off before the july race at daytona so he rented a condominium and he and some of his buddies went down there and spent the week um, mostly hanging out and drinking beer and all of that. But um, he literally drove to the track uh, with a couple of his friends, drove to turn four, uh, went up and sit, sat with his back against the wall there on the turn four banking and and kind of came... I don't want to say came to terms that I'm struggling to describe the, the right words, but he kind of dealt with it uh, directly while the track was quiet, while he could just be there with his thoughts. Um, and then once we arrived for the actual race weekend, we had kind of told the media, look, we'll, we'll do the typical, the post-qualifying interviews and things like that but we're not going to do any other interviews or he's not going to do in-depth news conference about his father this is this is a very private personal thing and everybody was pretty respectful for the most part Um, and practice began and he knew right away that that car was was fast Uh, the, the Budweiser crew, uh, you know, his crew chief, Tony Erie Sr., um, was his uncle. His cousin, Tony Jr., was the crew chief. They had spent the end of every day after the Big E's death massaging, polishing, working on that, that race car. It was really an obsession for them. And when that car got out on track in July, I mean, it was a rocket. And it was kind of funny because they all knew it and they all said all right let, let's let's be calm let's not get too excited here we know we've got a great car we know we've got a car that could win uh, and so it was very kind of low-key optimism and of course then that night was just uh, you know just insane um the crowd and, you know, and, and I've laughed about this. Part of my role as, as PR guy was, I was in charge of victory lane, of the hat dance and orchestrating all of that. So he wins the race and I run the, the victory lane there at Daytona and I can't figure out where in the world everyone's gone. And then I realized he had uh, spun through the grass and he and Michael Waltrip were celebrating. And uh, it's funny because he and I had talked about that, that, he hated winning a cup race and then sort of being forced to come to victory lane and go through this corporate, uh, you know, thing. Oh, you can't get out of the car right away. You got to wait. You got to do your TV interview. It was so very scripted and regulated. 
that uh, he had figured it out. He wasn't going to come to victory lane first. He was going to spin through the grass, celebrate it with the fans, celebrate it with the team. He didn't tell any of us because, like I say, I was back at victory lane wondering where in the hell everybody was at. But uh, it was something that he had thought thought about. And so that whole uh, scene out there on the grass after the win was something that he had really thought long and hard about. So uh it's still it, it's still pretty emotional for me today, and I think for him and a lot of people too, it was really a great moment. I know every time I see like the replay of the fat, you know, the last couple of laps, it always just gives me chills. Just how it all went down. You know, what were your emotions yeah. when you thought, you know, to go from sixth to first? Like, what were your emotions during that whole little run? It, it was it was amazing. Um, he had fresher tires than everyone. That's why he had dropped back. You know, he had run at the front most of the night. And then they decided uh, late that their best shot was to, to take tires. I, I can't remember how many laps were left there when, when the thing restarted. But we knew he had fresh tires. Um, Michael Waltrip was in the mix. I think initially on the restart was ahead of him. But once Michael fell in behind Dale Jr., it was basically a reverse of what had happened at the Daytona 500, where the two of them had, you know, had, had worked well together with Michael winning Dale Jr. second. Now, suddenly, that was reversed, and it's almost like you knew that he had his, uh, I don't know, his bodyguard behind him to help uh, help get him uh, across the finish line. So, uh, so yeah, those of us in the pits, it's just, you just, it's just this unbearable tension, uh, those final laps, because you're just, you know, as, as someone in the pit lane, you're, you can't do anything. It's in his hands. So you're just, you know, pulling him through every corner, every moment. So pretty, uh, pretty intense uh, time frame there at the end of that race. I know uh, later on in 2001, he won at uh, Dover with uh, the Wilson ball from Castaway in the car. <laughs> what was the backstory yeah. behind that? I've always wondered that. Well, uh, I, I will actually take credit for that one. Um, you know, it, the, the days after his father passed were very rough for him. And there were times when uh, it was a very lonely time for him. Uh, he'd sit in his bus on race weekends and he, he was a late night guy and he'd watch movies uh, and he uh, got hooked on the, uh, uh, the Tom, Tom Hanks movie, uh, Castaway. And Tom is on this island stranded and he develops this weird uh, relationship with Wilson, the volleyball. <laughs> and Junior just, he kind of thought that was, was cool or he identified with that. He's always been a big Tom Hanks fan too. So um so when 9-11 when happened, and, and again, we had already been through hell with Dale Sr.'s death, and then 9-11, um, everyone, everyone in the country was feeling the drift and all of that. And I just, I don't know what sparked it, but uh, we got to Dover, and I, I got there, and it, I just had this idea. So I went to like a local Walmart or somewhere, and got a volleyball and a red Sharpie and, <laughs> and so created a Wilson. And then Saturday before the race, before the last practice, uh, the, I'd shown the team and we wanted it to be a secret, but they said, let's stuff it in his helmet. So when he gets in the car, suddenly there's this volleyball. Uh, so he laughed his ass off and we all had a good laugh. And then one of the crew guys had the idea of, uh, taking zip ties and strapping the volleyball down on the, the floor of the car. So during the race, uh, Junior didn't know it was there until his cousin told him, you know, look, look on the floor behind you or something. And so it just, it, it was just this fun little idea that kind of grew and grew. Um, and in fact, it grew so big, Budweiser politely suggested we no longer bring Wilson to the track because the brand Wilson was getting more attention than the brand Budweiser. At that time. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, uh, so we politely uh, put it in the uh, uh, kind of the museum there uh, that was at DEI. But, uh, but yeah, the, the whole Wilson thing was, was kind of a fun, it was like a relief valve for us, something fun to, to, 
take some stress off and, you know, and of course you never can script the fact that he's going to win the race and take that giant American flag around the track afterwards. So um, I don't know, some of that stuff, if you were to write or script it for a movie, people would say, well, that, that's too corny. That's that, that would never happen, but uh, it really did happen. <laughs> so quite a time. So I know, you know, I, I guess my question would be, you know, with, you know, the about eight days, it seems like you guys had so much fun. You had so many great opportunities, you know, that you're able like, to take advantage of. Just looking back on it, what do you feel you really enjoyed the most about those times? You know, where NASCAR was number one on its, you know, on, on its bed, its peak and, you know, with yeah. Junior and everything. Well, I, I've already said it in the sense that Budweiser was very encouraging. We were not hampered by a, a, a risk-averse sponsor. Um NASCAR had a new TV deal that year. So the TV ratings were going up, uh, you know, the loss of Dale, suddenly the sport needed a new, you know, a new hero. Um, all of that fell into place and MTV fell in love with them. And I mentioned Rolling Stone magazine, um, you know, he did the Playboy interview again, from Budweiser's standpoint, that was their target audience. They wanted to reach the, the young men who read Playboy or read Rolling Stone or wanted to identify with an athlete that was more rock and roll than he was country. Um, so it was just this, this confluence of things that, that came together. Um, and for me, selfishly, personally, I have a music background. So the MTV stuff, the Rolling Stone stuff for me was a big thrill. And, and so I was able to use my background in music to kind of help further all of that. Uh, it just, it just everything fit together. You couldn't sort of force it to happen. It just happened, um, in the way that it should have. And, and, uh, you know, Luckily, we were just there and hopefully smart enough to play it right and to take advantage of it in, in the most positive way. Um, we also looked at it long term. Uh, he had a long term contract with Budweiser and my PR role, I had a long term contract. So I wasn't terrified of trying to get as much coverage right away. You know, I, I, I didn't have that fear that uh, if I don't get coverage every day, every day, every day that I was, you know, in, in danger. So it allowed us to think more long term. It allowed us to plan further ahead. It allowed us to take advantage of certain things, but also saying no to a lot of things that wouldn't have fit that, that long term plan. So, uh, so again, all those pieces just seem to really dovetail to, to make it all, all work. Do you feel that was kind of the, I guess, the, the, not script, but like kind of the mold of, you know, when a media outlet would reach out to you and, you know, ask for a feature or an interview, like, would you talk with Dale about that before, you know, kind of accepting uh, uh, one or declining? Yes and no. You, you, you kind of have different levels, right? So you, you knew even before his very first cup race that with his name alone, um, there's going to be a lot of interest. There's going to be a lot of media coverage among the NASCAR media, among the motorsports media. So it's not that we didn't, that we didn't care about that, but it was, it was strong enough there that we, it allowed us to look outside of that. Um, you know, we could take, uh, a risk by, you know, like I say, Playboy interview at that time, again, we're talking 20 some years ago, Playboy was very influential in the sense that young people who drank Budweiser also read Playboy. So you had this, this mix of, of uh, elements that, that allowed us to, to reach out to that and to take advantage of it. Um, you know, getting him on the Tonight Show, that sort of thing could never have happened without all those other pieces building up to it. Uh, and so that was the luxury we had was that, uh, you know, we had the name recognition. Um, and another thing that was funny, even if people never read the Rolling Stone articles or the Playboy, or if, even if they never saw him on MTV, 
the fact that there was so much publicity about those things, it only enhanced his, his image more. Uh, and so I, I found that very fascinating. Uh, and now I tell young people, never fail to celebrate your success. Uh, don't just be happy to get uh, a feature story in you know, Auto Week magazine. Promote the daylights out of Auto Week magazine so that you know, even if someone doesn't read it, they're like, wow, you know, I heard he was in you know, Auto Week or he was in USA Today, uh, that sort of thing. We, we, man, we promoted the heck out of all that just to enhance that sort of um, image that, uh, you know, this is the guy that you need to talk to um, if you're talking NASCAR. So, um, so that's something I try to encourage people. Uh, it's a little different now in the sense that the internet has sort of democratized things. There are fewer um, massive appearances or massive uh, news outlets that, that are, are big individually, but you can develop um, a, a series of them across the board and, and uh, enhance uh, you know, a sponsor's image or a driver's image or whatever. Uh, those sort of elements still apply to, you know, to young PR folk or young media folk that are out there uh, today. Never fail to celebrate and promote your successes. I've, uh, you know, I've always been a very big fan of, you know, like the early 2000s of, you know, NASCAR racing. You know, I'd always mm -hmm. found myself, I still to this day wind up watching old races from 2001 or, you know, anything of that nature. I'm just, I'm a big junkie of that, but, you know, yeah. what was, I've always wondered what's the, what was the vibe back then of just, you know, being at the racetrack, let's say, you know, the Sharpie 500 or something like that at Bristol. How special was that? Well, well the Bristol night race is kind of, it's kind of one in its own. It just kind of had an energy all its own. Um, and so that, that was always amazing and always intense. And the crowds were just insane. You're, you're really in a big bowl uh, and the fans are right on the track and the noise just echoes and reverbs inside of that thing. So it's kind of, it was kind of a, a, an entity of its own. <laughs> Uh, but each race, uh, I had mentioned earlier that that was the first year of the new TV deal where, um, at that time, uh, Fox was the first half and NBC was the second half, kind of like it, it is now. Um, so the ratings were higher than, than ever. Um, so within the garage, there was just such a, a sense of optimism and such a sense that, you know, man, th this thing's, this is a, a rising tide for all of us. Um, weirdly, Dale's death was uh, an insane setback to all of us. Emotionally, it was horrible, but from a standpoint of shining a bigger spotlight on NASCAR, um, it, it played that role. Um, it, it, it really forced people who had not considered NASCAR as a sport to take a look and say, you know, wow, what, you know, what is this? What, why is Dale Earnhardt on the cover of Time Magazine and People Magazine and the New York Times and all of this? Uh, it was just, it was a, a time that um, for a lot of us in the sport, whether you were with you know, Budweiser or whether if you were 30th in points, uh, it was a time where um, it was really uh, an exciting time uh, for everyone. Good business time. It, it just, uh, things were, were really uh, rolling along. And, you know, last couple of questions, kind of going with that, how have you seen, you know, I guess, American motorsports like NASCAR, IndyCar be able to grow in you know, the past couple of seasons? Yeah, it, it's, it's been fascinating. Again, I'm spoiled in the sense that uh, I'm old enough to have, have been around and seen the ebbs and flows throughout the, you know, throughout the years. And it is always kind of an ebb and flow. Um, I think NASCAR, in, in a sense, um, 
has had, um, there's always a change in the guard, which, you know, again, in every sport, there's that always that turnover. NASCAR went through a period where all of the guards were out of the sport within a, a very short time frame, And it's taken a while to reestablish the, you know, the new guard or the young guns or however you want to put it. So, um, so I think that was just inherent with, uh, you know, Tony Stewart, Jeff Gordon, Dale Jr., Jimmy Johnson, Carl Edwards, like all these leading names um, um, suddenly weren't there. Uh, and so, uh, so that's been fascinating. Uh, honestly, my background is more in open wheel. Uh, so I was there in the glory days before the ugly split. Uh, when, you know, when it was massive and things were great and life was good, then the split just killed it, killed it all. And it's only recently in the past couple of years where IndyCar has seen this sort of uh, resurgence. And it's due to great racing, great competition, but also really good personalities. You've got a lot of guys that are incredibly talented, that are incredibly likable drivers in IndyCar. And uh, for me, again, as a fan, as much as anything, I, I can't wait for each race because you're not sure who's going to win. You know, it's always something uh, exciting and new coming along. And so for me, uh, the optimism for open wheel in this country is, is great. Uh, you know, we've seen F1 uh, have this uh, amazing surge of, of interest. Um, you know, people say it's all Netflix, which I agree that's brilliantly done, but it's just, again, a confluence of uh, very likable uh, young athletes that are brilliant at what they do, uh, great personalities. Uh, you, we used to laugh about Dale Jr. about, uh, you know what, the guys want to have a drink with him and the girls really want to have a drink with him as well. And that, that's really what I'm seeing in, in uh IndyCar and, and F1 or a lot of these personalities really appealing to a wide array of people. So um, I don't know. I, I'm excited. I'm optimistic. I think it's going to be uh, uh, a growth curve continuing here moving forward. You mentioned with, you know, uh, almost done here. <laughs> um, That's you know, all right. <laughs> don't want to make you uh, miss your uh, tennis. No, uh, we're, we're good. We're all good. Right, I'll let you know if, that's, uh, <laughs> if that comes close. Um, but you know, you mentioned with like personalities within the sport. I know I kind of grew away from NASCAR a little bit, you know, after, you know, I was a big Tony Stewart fan at the time when all those guys started to retire NASCAR, I was kind of looking around yeah. and IndyCar kind of sparked my interest in, you know, to see all those personalities within, you know, both sides. It's, it's just really cool to be able to see that. And, you know, they're just so likable, like you mentioned. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, and I just, I, I think it's, Exciting. Again, I'm, I'm biased. I was with Mazda uh, for a few years as a huge part of this Mazda Road to Indy, uh, now just Road to Indy, and, and it gave IndyCar a very natural uh, ladder system where you, you kind of see, you know, I, I, I use the example of Pato Award being one of my favorites. He showed up uh, at age 15 and it was like, wow, this kid is, he's fast, he's likable, he's got a great personality. And so you saw him develop uh, for three or four years and suddenly he hits the scene and, you know, and just comes out blazing. And, and I think the same with NASCAR, you're now seeing the, the lower categories starting for produce drivers to sort of take over what had been missing. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's important to have those personalities. And in the, at the end of the day, it really comes down to storytelling. Uh, whether I'm doing PR or I'm trying to do a feature story on video uh, or if I'm writing a book, it's all about telling a compelling human story and I think that's what really drives a lot of the, the fan engagement is telling good stories, telling them well, and making people care about who's on track or who's in that car versus who's in that car. Um, I think that's a huge part of how I approach it. And hopefully that's a huge part in what will continue to drive growth in the future. 
And uh, you know, if you if you had five minutes to uh, you know give your younger self a uh, you know like uh, advice <laughs> during like let's say the Budweiser, yeah. what would you uh, say to him? Um, probably to enjoy it more. Um, and it's great. And looking back, it, it, it it's all wonderful. But at the time, uh, you know, I worked seven days a week for five or six years before I was smart enough to hire someone to work with me. Uh, and I'm not complaining, but at the time, um, it's hard to appreciate how great you've got it when you're just sort of, um, I laugh that I tell people I had a full head of hair when I started working with Dale Jr. And that's not really true, but uh, it just, the stresses, the travel, uh, it is very much a young person's sport. Uh, and I, I think I took it so seriously that I, I didn't always appreciate the fun at, at that moment. Uh, looking back now, I, I guess I can, but, uh, but it, it just, um, it, it was just a wonderful time uh, with Dale Jr. And I've loved everything I've done before and since, but, but it's gonna be tough in the rest of my life to match anything of that level of intensity and excitement and drama day by day. <laughs> My day. <laughs> and final question for me. Uh, you know, I'll be interviewing James Hinchcliffe next week on the show. Oh, so I'd like to ask yeah. you, you know, is there any burning question that you'd uh, you know, comes to mind that you'd like to ask him? He is one of my favorite human beings. Uh, I actually met his father before I met James. And I told his father that I had worked with Craig Moore oh. uh, when I was with Mercedes. So my very first meeting with James was him saying, did you really know Greg Moore? <laughs> and so he and I kind of bonded on that. Um, what would I want to ask James? I, I, he's going to kill it on TV. And I'm trying to think, of what, what would I ask him about? Uh, what, what is his most valuable lesson inside the race car that he's going to be able to share with us as fans on tv when we're when we're watching this year and beyond i really like that yeah you know because he can <laughs> very 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 easily like describe things so well and yeah i think he'll be great you know like that yeah, i'm gonna make sure to ask him that next week and i'll, I'll post yeah. that and tag in or something <laughs> I, I, I loved my time with james we we'd talk about anything other than racing usually we'd talk about comedy and movies and he's just he's just a wonderful human being so uh, uh so i wish you well interviewing i'm sure he'll be a delight to, to talk to he's always a lot of fun but you know i appreciate all your time jada uh, you know sure. i didn't i'll be honest i didn't really know who you were before the dale jr download but then i you know searched up a lot you know i'm gonna yeah. start reading the other books and yeah you have incredible answers and you know you've done so much and you know i'm just grateful that yeah, you accepted uh, you know, to interview. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I tell you that that 90 minutes that I was there with with Dale and his co-host, Mike, who I had brought in, I had hired him, uh, was just amazing and great fun. And and that's the thing. I, I want to be able to share my passion for the sport and tell great stories and help others tell great stories. So uh, it's been a grand time since uh, being on his uh, on his show. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, tennis goes well tonight. Um, <laughs> fingers <yeah>. crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you again for all your time. And, uh, you know, Great. I'll be uh, posting some videos here soon. <laughs> Great. Thank you, David. Uh, let me know. I'll, uh, I'll promote, uh, promote it as best I can. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, you have a good day. Okay. <laughs> all right. You too. Take care. You too. We'll, we'll see you. <laughs>Thank you guys for listening to episode 41 with Jade Gerse. Jade, he had so much incredible insight and it just, you could just tell from every single word, every sentence, just how much his time with Dale Jr. meant to him. Just how much, just, you know, his passion for motorsports just breathes just through him in every single sentence. And it was just such a joy to be able to get to know him, get to talk to him, talk about his books, the, you know, all sorts of things from, you know, the MTV Music Awards with Dale Jr. and how nervous he was and all that, you know, all that other stuff. So, you know, for Jade, I, I really appreciate him coming on the show. And uh, thank you, Jade, once again, um, you know, for taking the time. Um, it was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, can't wait to uh, maybe get him back on the, on the show here soon. But 
That is all the time that we do have today on this episode 41. Uh, episode 42 with a special guest, as you guys uh, probably saw that. Um, towards the end of the interview, James Hinchcliffe, the mayor of Hinchtown, who was in IndyCar as a full-time driver. Now he's moving over to NBC via driver analyst. So, yeah, we're going to have him on the show here in a couple days, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and, you know, and, you know, it's just going to be incredible. So uh, you guys should look out for that. And um, yeah, I'm David Hoffman saying so long from the man cave and I'll catch you guys later from behind the catch beds.